And I said, one of the things that I love about those opening chapters of Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters, but let's just say Genesis 1 through 3, is that Genesis 1 through 3 is like an instrument panel on an airplane. I don't know if I have any pilots out there. But there is something that pilots can sometimes experience called spatial disorientation. All right? Some years ago when I was living in Beaufort, we were spending the day in Savannah and we were coming back into town. And as we were making our way back into town, just the family and I in our car, all of a sudden we saw police everywhere. Blue lights everywhere, fire trucks everywhere. You couldn't even get into the town. They had cordoned off the entire town. We, we had no idea what had taken place. Well, Beaufort has an annual air show in which they bring in the U.S. Navy flying teams and particularly the Blue Angels. Uh, every now and then, even here in Charleston, you'll see the Blue Angels flying over. They're preparing for that air show, and they're a wonder to behold. But a tragedy had happened in this particular air show. One of the Blue Angels had crashed. He crashed his plane, which you know is a you know, billion-dollar plane, and the pilot was killed instantly. Now, it takes some time for the Navy to do an investigation to determine exactly what had happened. What, what happened to this pilot, these highly trained individuals, that he died? And one of the explanations that was given eventually, several months later, in the newspaper, was that he had experienced spatial disorientation. What happens is that a pilot can experience extreme G-force. And when that happens, you can black out momentarily, temporarily. Sometimes you can experience spatial disorientation if you fly into a dense fog or into a severe storm and you experience a great deal of turbulence. And what spatial disorientation basically means is that you think that you are flying right side up when in fact you're, right, you're upside down. And that's exactly what had happened to this pilot. He experienced extreme G-force and he momentarily blacked out doing one of these fancy maneuvers. And when he came to, he realized that he'd been out for a second. He assumed that he was right side up, he was upside down, he pulled back on the stick thinking he was going up and he went right down into the ground and crashed. Spatial disorientation. And as I said, pilots can experience that if they're in a fog or in a severe thunderstorm, if they have all kinds of you know, heavy cloud cover and turbulence and so forth. So pilots are trained that when you experience spatial disorientation, you, for a moment you're not quite clear where you are, what side's up, that you do not rely on your senses. You read the instrument panel. Take a look at the instrument panel. Well, I've always said that Genesis 1 through 3 is our instrument panel. It helps us to understand the world in which we live. It helps us to understand why the world is the way that it is, and it helps us to understand why we human beings are the way that we are. And there is a sense in which Paul is harking back to that instrument panel here in Romans chapter 5. He says, if you want to understand why being united to Christ is the essence of salvation and is absolutely essential for your eternal destiny, he said, you have to go back to the beginning and understand that you were once united with Adam. That Christ's action on the cross and with the empty tomb and with the ascension, that transforms our fate in the same way that Adam's transgression in that first garden also transformed 
our fate. So Genesis 1 through 3 helps us to understand why the world is the way that it is. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And Paul uses two great universals to make the point. The universality, first of all, of sin and the universality of death. Look again, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world, even before the law was given, even before people knew that they were sinning, sin was in the world, he says. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul says that we know that our fate was linked to Adam because of these two great universals, sin and death. I've sometimes said that these are the two great undeniable, if you will, Christian doctrines. They're uncontested. We all recognize the universality of sin. Now, I recognize the fact that living in this day and age, many people don't call it sin anymore. But we nevertheless recognize that there is some sort of moral standard, don't we? It's interesting to note that you get into a conversation with even a person who does not believe, and they'll often say, well, now look, I recognize I'm no saint. By virtue of the fact that they make that kind of a statement, I recognize that I'm no saint, what they are doing is they are appealing to some sort of moral standard, aren't they? This is really, if you think about it, the weakness of atheism. If you believe that there is no God, then if you think about it, there really is no ultimate moral standard. You really can't stand in judgment of anybody like the Nazis in 1930s Germany. You can't say that they did something wrong. It was simply the survival of the fittest. And yet each and every one of us knows that there are some things that are always right. There are some things that are always wrong. We have a sense deep down inside as human beings of morality. Where does that come from? And the other great universal is not just sin, but death. Everywhere we look, you see death in the created order and particularly among human beings. Now, some people will tell you, particularly in a secular culture, well, that's just the part of life. That's just part of the, the cycle of life, that creatures are born, they develop, they decline, and they die, and that's just the way that it is. And that's true. Everywhere you look, you see that. You see that in the plant world. Now, it's true, some trees live a lot longer than other trees. If you go to the Holy Land, some of you are going to be going to the Holy Land with me in the spring, I'm going to show you some olive groves where there are trees that were there at the time that Jesus walked the earth. But no tree lives forever. No plant lives forever. No animal lives forever. And no human being lives forever. I hate to remind people, but nobody's getting out of here alive. And yet, even for those who say, well, it's just the natural part of our existence, why is it then that human beings of all creatures rail against death? You know, I, I came to a great revelation about this some years ago. We had a golden retriever. 
And you know, it's very easy to get attached to a golden retriever. Um, but that dog developed cancer. And um, we called in, we had a dear friend who was a vet, and I found the dog one day lying in a patch of ivy in our backyard. And I went over there and he was still alive and I picked him up because I knew he was suffering and I brought him to the back porch and I was petting him and um, he could just barely function. And I called the vet and the vet was on his way and then I um, just got up to go get a drink of water and I saw the dog limping across the yard back into the ivy again to lie down. And when the vet came, I said, what in the world is the problem? He said, he knows he's going. There's something within him that knows that he's going. But one of the things that I noticed was the dog was not the least bit troubled by it. The dog wasn't fighting against it. It was as though the dog was simply resigned to his fate. But how many human beings are normally resigned to the idea of death? We spend our whole lives trying to put off death, don't we? To fight back the clock, to live forever. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying we should be resigned to death. But what I am saying is that that is an indicator to us that there is something within us that tells us that death, at least for human beings, is unnatural. We rail against it. We fight against it. C.S. Lewis said that if there is a desire that is within us, it's because God put it there. He said, think about it. You have a desire to eat. And that's because there is such a thing as food. Whatever this desire is, there is something that meets that desire. If you have a desire for eternity, Lewis said it's probably because you were made for another world. So as human beings, we rail against death. No other creature does that. Other creatures, if they're even aware of the fact that they are dying, don't seem to be the least bit troubled by it. They just pass without any difficulty whatsoever. But human beings, we rail against it because we recognize there's something unnatural in this. And that's an indicator that we were created for something else. Now here's the question. It's not that sin exists or that death exists. We all know that. The question is, why do these things exist? Why is it that we are troubled when there is a violation of some sort of moral standard? Why is it that we rail against death? We rail against the dying of the light, as the poet says. Why? What accounts for that? Well, Paul said what accounts for that is the fact that you and I have been united to Adam. That's the instrument panel. That explains why the world is the way that it is and why you and I are the way that we are. We have been united to Adam. Adam is responsible. We are all OS positive. Original sin positive. Now I know what's going through many people's mind at this point. So Adam's trespass affected all of us. Isn't that what Paul says? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
you're thinking to yourself, well, that's just not fair. Why should my fate be tied to Adam's fate? Why should it be that Adam sins and I pay the price for it? Well, there are a number of things to take into consideration here. But at the very least, take this into consideration. Do you really think that you could have done a better job than he did? Do we really think we could have done a better job than Adam? What God does, and you again see this if you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 through 3, one of the things that you will see is that God creates man in his own image. And Adam is his representative figure. He basically says to that first man, you are going to be my representative of humanity. And if you obey, they will obey. If you disobey, they will disobey. Whatever your fate, their fate. That must have been a tremendous incentive for Adam to obey. The second thing is this. Adam was the perfect man. He had never been subject to any kind of temptation. Sin was not all around him. He lived, at least according to the book of Genesis, and we talked about the fact that this is very poetic language, but nevertheless, a great spiritual truth is being conveyed in those opening chapters. What we're really being taught is that God walked with him. There was an intimate relationship. He was in a place of paradise. The point being that if Adam, who was never surrounded by sin, never surrounded by a corrupt culture, could not resist the temptation, how could you and I? But the good news, Paul says, is that while you and I are united to Adam, and because he sinned, death came into the world, and death has reigned ever since. That's the way he describes it, as a reign of death. He says, nevertheless, God in his mercy has given us a new Adam. That's how Jesus is described in the New Testament, as a new Adam. And when we become believers, we are united to him. The link with the old Adam, in a sense, has been severed. Not entirely, because we'll still sin. But the fate that linked us to Adam has been severed. And now with Christ, we've been given a new name, a new status, and ultimately a new destiny. Now that is what Paul calls the good news. Theologians refer to this as federal theology. We talked about this last week, the fact that we understand how this works. When you elect members to Congress, if they decide to raise your taxes, that affects you. If they lower your taxes, that affects you. They are acting on your behalf. Adam acted on our behalf. But when we become united to Christ, he now acts on our behalf, and our fate is inevitably linked to his. Now, the question becomes, how are we linked to Christ? How do we become linked to Christ? How is it that we get engaged to Jesus Christ so that we can be married to him? And the simple answer to that is that you have to be born again. You have to experience a rebirth. Just as Adam's transgression brought death to all, so our union with Christ brings new life to all, a new life, a new beginning. 
And that, of course, is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want to hear about the new birth, if you want to hear about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, go back and listen to the rector's form from a few weeks ago, because we talked at great length about this notion of a new birth. But it's by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's when God comes and takes up possession of our lives that we become a new creation. We are forever linked to Jesus. And however great our union with Adam was, here's the important thing to remember. Our union with Christ is even greater. That's very important, especially if you look back over your life and you have a lot of regrets. If you really lived a notorious past, and some of you may not have, but some of you may have, if you've really lived a wretched past or you've done something that you just can't seem to shake and you know that you are in Adam, you are convicted of your sin, I want you to understand that your union with Christ is far greater than your union with Adam. Union with Adam brings death. Union with Christ brings life. What happens in Adam is natural. What happens in Christ is supernatural. Your union with Adam brings condemnation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. But union with Christ brings what? Vindication. I think I've told you this before. Some years ago when I was in seminary, I took a class at Catholic University. And I had time between classes at the university, and so I would walk across the street to the basilica there. There are two great churches that if you go to Washington, D.C., you really ought to visit. One of them, of course, is the National Cathedral up on Mount St. Albans. It's a great example of Gothic architecture, one of the finest architectural gems in the country. Don't listen to the theology that comes out of there, but go and visit the church. It's a magnificent church, really beautiful. And the other one that you ought to see is on the campus of Catholic University of America, and that is the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. There are two churches done in a very different style. The National Cathedral is a Gothic cathedral, just like what you would see in England, at Canterbury or at Salisbury or something like that. The Basilica is done in the Byzantine style, and it is covered from floor to ceiling with magnificent mosaics, all of those tiny little colored tiles that when you put them together, hundreds of thousands, probably millions in the church as a whole, come together to form magnificent pictures. And one of the most impressive of all of these is the picture that is right above the high altar. It's in the dome. It's in the apse. And it is an enormous picture of Christ seated in judgment. And he sits upon the throne with a crown upon his head. There are rolling clouds coming in. There's thunder. There's lightning. You can get a sense of all of this. He's seated upon the throne. He's got an orb in one hand representing his power over the earth, and he's got a scepter in the other hand. And then there's a great passage up there from Revelation about the judge of all the world. And I remember being there one day and just sitting there looking up at this thing, not saying a word, but there were lots of people coming through the building at the time, and as they came by, they had one of two reactions. Everybody had one of two reactions when they looked up and they saw that image. They either said, that is awesome. Or they said, that is terrifying. 
Now, every single Sunday, you and I stand and we say that we believe that he will come again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. You do realize that we are all going to be judged one day because God is a God of justice. He will set the broken and fallen world right. Nobody escapes judgment. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you're going to escape judgment. We're all going to be judged. But whether your reaction is this is awesome or this is terrifying depends entirely on one thing, whether you are in Adam or you are in Christ Jesus. Because if you are in Adam, it will be terrifying. God is a refining fire. He will deal justly. He cannot abide by sin and wickedness. And we can be thankful that he won't. But he's also a God of mercy. And for those lives who are hidden in him, they will be able to say this is awesome because it will not be a day of condemnation. It will be a day of vindication. You know, going into court is not a bad thing unless the judgment is against you. If somebody accuses you of something and you're actually innocent and the judge finds you innocent, that's not condemnation, folks. That's vindication. And when we stand before the great throne of judgment one day, each and every one of us, the New Testament said it is appointed man once to die, and then what? There is judgment. It's appointed man once to die, and then there is judgment. And God opens the book, and he looks at our life, and what do you think he sees? Well, if we are in Adam, what he sees is he sees Adam's transgression. Adam's desire to be in charge of his own life, his own destiny. If you're in Christ, what does he see? He sees his precious son, Jesus Christ, who has paid in full, a one full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And when he looks at us and sees his son, not us, not our wickedness, but the fact that we have been united to him, we were once Miss Sinner. We have now become Mrs. Christian. We have a new name, a new status. He declares us innocent, not because we're perfect, but because the price for our transgression has been paid in full. Union with Adam brings death. Union with Christ brings vindication, and it brings an eternal reign. Union with Adam, death. You know, it's interesting. You go back and you read the Old Testament where it talks about so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Or you go back and you read all the kings. It always comes, and he died, and then, and he died, and then, and he died, and then. Everybody dies. It's a reign of death. That's the way Paul describes it here in Romans chapter 5. But in Christ, that reign is ended and a new reign begins, a new era, and it's a glorious era in which you and I reign with Christ. And how does this happen? How does this come about? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
It's interesting to note that in verses 15 and following, Paul uses that word grace five separate times. Our fate, our status is transformed by the grace of God. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. A free gift. All of grace. We are saved by grace, not by works. This wonderful free offer of being united to Christ having our entire destiny forever transformed is all a matter of God's grace. He's under no obligation whatsoever to do it. Do you understand how wonderful that notion of grace really is? I mean, I know as Christians, we talk about grace. We hear about grace. We sing about grace. John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace. But I wonder if we really understand grace. I would venture so far as to say that most Christians really do not see it as amazing grace. They see it as boring grace. They don't doubt its importance, but they really don't understand how it impacts their life. Here's how J.I. Packer put it in his book, Knowing God. And if you've never read that book, incidentally, read that book. If you only read one other Christian book aside from the Bible, this is the book I'd recommend to you. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I know you say, well, but about C.S. Lewis? Talk to Brian about that. I'm telling you that J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, is the book that you ought to read. If you don't read any other book beside the Bible, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It will transform your life and the way you look at the world, at yourself, and at God. And it's the essence of Christianity. As you've heard me say many times before, Christianity is not so much about religion, it's about a relationship. It's about knowing him. Well, this is what J.I. Packer says in that book, Knowing God. He said, for most people, the conception of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought means nothing to them. It does not touch their experience at all. Talk to a person about the church's heating bill or last year's accounts, and they are with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of deferential blankness. 
That's a wonderful expression, deferential blankness. In other words, they recognize it's important, I just don't know why. They do not accuse you of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning, but they feel that whatever it is you are talking about, it is beyond them. And the longer they have lived without it, the sure they are that their stage of life, that they do not really need it. Do you realize how important grace is for your life? Do you understand how God's grace is manifest in your life? Do you realize how grace transforms your ultimate destiny? When you sing those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, let me ask you, do you really see yourself as a wretch? How many of you really regard yourselves as a wretch? Now, you know, it's, it's really interesting. We can say that about ourselves, but if I call you a wretch... Chances are what? You're going to be greatly offended. The reality is, if we're greatly offended when somebody else calls us a wretch, chances are we really don't see ourselves that way. Why is it that grace is so central? Paul's so excited about it here. My goodness. Grace, 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 grace. Five times he lets us have it here. Grace, our ultimate destiny, our union with Christ, the passing from death to life, from being an enemy to God to being a friend of God. It's all a matter of God's amazing grace. Hallelujah, Paul says. Why are we not that excited about grace? I had an interesting experience this past week, past weekend. I went to my first Clemson game. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're all excited about that. That was an experience. Um, I've been to small college games, but this is a religion. I mean, it, it was marvelous. We had a ball. We had a great time. I had to travel back. I want you to know I was back for Sunday school. We drove back. And it was a close game, it was an exciting game, everything. But I am telling you, don't anybody complain about length of sermons around here. Because I saw people sit on those hard bleachers in the sun. Half of their face was burned and their lips were chapped. And they were shouting and cheering and singing. And they did it for three and a half hours. And they were excited about it. Why aren't we that excited about God's grace? Why? The very fact that we're not is an indicator to us that we really don't regard grace as an amazing thing at all. Why do you suppose that is? Let me suggest to you, J.I. Packer is really the one who does this, four reasons why we don't recognize grace as being as amazing as it is, as amazing as Paul says it is here. The first reason is because we do not have a real sense of our own depravity. Paul understood that grace was amazing because Paul knew that it had been grace that had saved him. Paul knew how terrible he really was. You know that his life, when he started off, was as a persecutor of the church. Paul thought that he was working for God, and on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus Christ. And do you know what Jesus' words were to Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute 
me. So what Paul discovers is that rather than working for God, he had actually been persecuting God. Going out and systematically dismantling the church, working to somehow thwart the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, Paul knew that what he deserved was to be turned into a cinder on the road to Damascus. And God chose to have mercy on him. That's one of the reasons why he says, I'm an apostle, but I don't even deserve the title because I am the least of the apostles. And Paul describes himself. Now, I want you to think about this. This is the apostle Paul, mind you, who wrote this epistle, the great champion for Christ, who died there on the Appian Way outside of Rome for the sake of the gospel. This was the same Paul who says, I am the foremost of sinners. See, Paul saw himself for what he really was. No, he didn't see himself in relationship to other people. He saw himself in relationship to Almighty God. And he realized that he was indeed a wretch. That's one of the reasons why that hymn, Amazing Grace, is so extraordinary. Now, most of you know the story behind that. John Newton, you know that he was a notorious slave trader. And God had mercy on him. And that's why he called it amazing grace. So man no longer has a concept of his own depravity, his own wickedness. Take a look sometime at hymns 671 and 686 in our hymnal. Secondly, man has no real sense of God's holiness. These two things go hand in hand. We not only have a real sense of our own wickedness, our own sin, our own depravity, we're always comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as her, or I'm not as bad as him. Well, God is not comparing you to other people. God is comparing you to himself. That's, that's the only standard of judgment that God is using, by the way. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? I'm going to tell you exactly how good you must be. You must be as good as your Father in heaven. How many of you measure up? I think I used an illustration in here not long ago. A person can be down in the bottom of a mine shaft, and another person can be, in terms of their morality, on the top of the highest point in the Alps, but both individuals are incapable of reaching the stars. That's how God sees us. So grace is not all that amazing to us because we have no sense of our own depravity and no sense of God's holiness. There's a powerful image of this in the book of Isaiah. Turn, if you will, to that great prophetic work, book of Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a familiar story at least if you've ever been to an ordination service, because this is one of the lessons that's always assigned to be read at the ordination of a priest. But Isaiah has this vision. He's transported to the heavenly courts, and he has this vision. And I want you to see what happens when he sees God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Throne implies majesty honor, authority. 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, majesty, power, glory, honor, authority. And when Isaiah sees all of this, what does he say? Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am lost. Let me tell you something. Every single one of us, when we stand before the throne of God and see him in his glory and majesty, that's going to be our initial reaction. I am lost. Some years ago, I remember um, when we had a new priest here, um, Ryan Street, uh, we had to buy him new vestments because he didn't have the proper vestments to wear. So we bought him all these new vestments. And I'm standing in line right next to him. And we're wearing our cassocks, our black cassocks, and our white surplices over. And I'm standing next to him. And he's got this brand new thing he's just taken out of the bag. And I thought mine looked white. But when I'm standing next to him, it looked dingy yellow. First thing I did Monday morning is I said, Rachel, order me a new surplice. I don't want to go down the aisle next to Ryan. He looks so clean and tidy, and I look so dingy. By myself, I looked pretty good. Standing next to him, I looked pretty pitiful. Imagine what it will be like when you and I stand before God himself. What we will say is, woe is me. I am lost. But look at how the story goes. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Hallelujah. Grace will stop being boring and it will become amazing to you when you have a sense of your depravity, a sense of God's holiness, an understanding of your own inability to do anything to earn God's favor or to clean your filthy rags. And when you realize that God, this is the final point, owes you Nothing. God doesn't owe us a darn thing. Nothing. One of my favorite sections of the Old Testament is the book of Job. Turn there for just a minute. Easy to find, Job. Just go, close your Bible, open it up to the center. If you hit Psalms or Proverbs, dead center, you hit Psalms or Proverbs, go to the left and you'll hit Job. It's the next book over. You all know the story of Job. Job had a rough life, started off pretty well, went from bad to worse, 
And what happens is that when Job begins to experience difficulty, all of his friends are saying, well, you just need to curse God, or you've done something wrong. Job, no, he hadn't done anything wrong. But he does begin to question God. He begins to question God. Why are you letting this happen to me? I'm a good guy. How many of you have ever thought that in your life? How many of you have ever said to yourself, God, now why are you letting this happen to me? None of you have never asked that question? I ask that question all the time. Maybe you're better than I am, but I ask, Lord, why is this happening to me? Have you ever asked that question? That's exactly what Job does. But I want you to notice how the Lord answers. Job 38. And let me tell you something. This is going to go on for several chapters. Job has thrown all of his questions, all of his accusations at God, and finally God says, all right, stop, enough. Now it's my turn to ask a few questions, Job. And here's what he says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. You've questioned me, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? Or where was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the seas with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And he goes on and on like that and on like that. And, and eventually what happens is um, Job says, okay, enough, I, I, I get the picture. And God says, well, I'm not finished. Chapter 39, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open, and they go out and do not return. In other words, do you understand how I created the world? Do you understand how I maintain all that lives upon the earth? And he goes on and on and on, questioning Job. And Job gets to the end, and he says, okay, I get it. And the Lord says, I'm not done. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I said, I'm not done. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? And he goes on and on and on. Can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook, etc., etc.? And you get to the end of all of this and Job says, I am lost. God owes us nothing. He is the sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And yet he has mercy on us and makes a way possible for us, Miss Sinner, to enter into a relationship with his beloved son and become Mrs. Christian so that our fate, which was once tied to Adam, Adam's helpless race is now tied to Christ 
so that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. That just as Christ died and was raised, so we will die, but we will be raised. And just as he now sits in the glorious heavenly realm, so one day we will be seated with him forever. We have passed from death to life, from darkness to light. We are now forever, our lives hidden in Jesus Christ. And it is all a matter of God's grace. Isn't it amazing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind to accuse God, but now I see. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that while we start off this life united to Adam in the fall and in Adam's destiny bound to this reign of death, we thank you that you have broken the curse by your son Jesus Christ and by grace, undeserved, unearned faith, simply received in faith, nothing we do, we can be united to Christ no longer bound in a reign of death, but in a reign of life for all eternity. Grant us the ability to see your grace as the wondrous, amazing thing that it really is. And for that to happen, help us to see ourselves for who we really are. To see you for who you really are. A just and merciful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you.